Yeah, thank you. Evening, everybody. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Uh, the Transfiguration of Jesus, a glimpse of glory. Mark 9, verses 2 to 13. Having reached the pivotal or crucial moment in Mark's Gospel, as in Lizzie's talk last time, we come to the amazing transfiguration, the metamorphosis, which is the meaning of transfiguration. The word is almost a direct transliteration of the Greek word metamorpho. It occurs in Mark and Matthew, which we will see, but not in Luke, but also in Romans 12 verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's possible, so possible for our faces to shine like Jesus as uh, we contemplate his image. And with that in mind, let's read the word. Uh, Mark 9, verse, verses 2 to 13. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him, and led them up a high mountain, where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say, they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love, listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. That's Mark. I thought perhaps we could look at Matthew and Luke as well, just to get a quick glimpse of the slight differences. Matthew 17. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John, his brother, led them up the high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. 
hear him. When the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognise him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. And then in Luke, Luke 9, verse 28, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendour talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfilment at Jerusalem. His companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. It's interesting, I was wondering whether the three account one well for one for Peter, one for James and one for John but also I was thinking about uh, Andrew Ollerton gave an example in the Bible course about where he and his wife had to give <coughs> statements to the police where they'd seen an event an, an incident outside their house or, or dwelling wherever they were and they they were both in different rooms so they saw it from a different angle and they both gave statements to the police both of which were true because they'd seen They've both seen the incident, one from one angle, one from the other. So it's a similar thing when you get different accounts from different angles. So that was uh, an interesting uh, th thought came to me. I don't know if anybody's got any thoughts yet. I, I just found it a bit um, amazing that in Luke it says about eight days, but then all the others say six days. Well, it, Sorry, about is, I think about yeah. is the, uh, the qualifying thing there. Yeah, the question that... I, that um, I, well, I hadn't thought about it, but somebody else suggested it, was why were there only three taken up the mountain and not all the disciples? Interesting question, isn't it? Nobody's got any idea? No. Um, I wondered if it's because these were the chief disciples. Yeah, it probably seems like that, doesn't it? Yeah, Heather? if yeah. you know, mm. yeah, like the boss, bosses of the, the well, rest of them, or I, supervisors or whatever you like to I, I, wonder whether, I wondered whether it was something to do with Mrs. Zebedee, because she'd yeah. been, been promoting, yeah. her son, <laughs> promoting her sons. Uh, anyway, the other question, I th the next question I thought was, well, where was this? 
where were they? And obviously it doesn't say where it was in the text, but generally there are, there are three possibilities, which uh, we'll come to hopefully. Um, there, there seem to be differences of opinion as to the location. Mount Nebo, which is down by, which is more or less level with the top of the, the Dead Sea, but the other side of the Jordan, now that's a long way away from where they were because after they came back from the mountain, they then eventually went down to, to Galilee again. Mm. And if the next event was then, they it would, it would have had a job beetling back up to get to Galilee. <laughs> so I think that rather knocks that on the head. Uh, the next one is Mount Tabor, which is near, much nearer Galilee. So it's, it's, near, it's, more, it's a more favourite place for uh, tourists, and that's why the Catholics have put a cathedral on top of it. And, it's, uh, <laughs> and that, doesn't, that doesn't really enhance the authenticity of it. In 1919 1924, a Roman Catholic church was, was uh, planted there, named the Church of the Transfiguration, which was built on the peak. And, and then before that, there was... Uh, the ruins of a Byzantine church from the fifth, or sorry, of sixth century, and a Crusader church from the twelfth century. In the upper part of the church above the altar, there is a mosaic which depicts the Transfiguration. So they have, they've, they've uh, more or less <laughs> claimed that there. However, Mount Hermon is is really the favourite, being being much higher and more remote. Hermon is called Syrian by the Sidonians, and the Amorites call it Sinir. It's also believed that the fallen angels landed on Hermon before launching into their nefarious activities. It's also much nearer Caesar Philippi. So there's uh, Mount Hermon's at the top there. We see at the top there, and obviously it's, it's 14 miles from Caesar Philippi to, to Hermon. And that's, they were in, obviously in Caesar Philippi when uh, Peter was proclaiming Jesus was Christ. Yeah, that's the road going up, which is an amazing. You see the snow capped at the top, and then that's a nearer, nice, windy road going up, which is, looks lovely. It'd be great to go out there, wouldn't it? Um, it's Herm it was significant in the Bible for a few reasons. It was it marked the northern limits of the Promised Land conquered by Joshua in Deuteronomy. Mount Hermon also formed the northern boundary of the territory inherited by the half tribe of Manasseh as well as the northern border of, of the whole of Israel in general. It's always been considered a sacred mountain. Worshippers from the earliest times were drawn to its isolated heights. Several ruins of ancient sanctuaries have been found on Mount Hermon, and Judges 3 called Mountain Baal Hermon, meaning Lord of Hermon. Some of the Psalms praise Mount Hermon for its loftiness and majesty. King David compared God's people living together in unity to the Jew of Hermon. That's in Psalm 133. This illustration is fitting since the, the slopes of Mount Hermon in the north receive profuse amounts of dew. Mount Zion in the south is much drier. David compared the refreshing dew of Hermon to the blessings of unity in Israel from north to south. Harmony among God's people is life-giving. Mount Hermon is also noted for its wildlife in the Bible. In the, from the Song of Solomon. So after that progressive uh, diversion of geography, let's uh, 
let's look at the um, let's look at some text it, on the veracity of this amazing event it seems again that commentators differ on the the opinion about it well apparently one thinks it's a legend of a resurrection story another thinks it's simply symbolical however the precise after six days rings true as a real event and Peter calling Jesus rabbi doesn't tie in with symbolism and constantly Mark is recording live events such as miracles, healings, etc. So why would he divert into symbolism? There are also thoughts about it being a vision rather than a physical event. I prefer a real event, don't you? <laughs> Much better. So let's have a look at the text. Now verse 2, after six days Jesus took Peter, James and John. This, they, were, they were alone. This astonishing sight of Jesus glorified Following Peter's declaration of Jesus' divinity, this seems as though God is confirming that, that fact. And interesting that Mark doesn't mention Jesus' face as Matthew and Luke do. It was an, undoubtedly an amazing sight and possibly how we may see Jesus if we're alive at the rapture. It's a thought, isn't it? However, it's on a less glorious level than in Revelation 1. In Revelation 1, John says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Tremendous, isn't that wonderful? Calvin said, it was a temporary exhibition of his glory. That's a brief thing. So, verse 4. Elijah and Moses appear. Now, this is another question. <laughs> How did they know it was Elijah and Moses? There weren't any photographs or internet or anything else. Um, did Jesus tell them? Yeah. Do you think he did? Or, or is it possible that they introduced themselves, you know, in the normal polite English way? In the My name's Elijah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's go for one or the other. I think, I think sometimes we so know things by the Spirit. Yes. You know, I saw... Toby and Charlotte's car, I'd only seen it once before. I saw it Sunday afternoon. Yeah. You know, and I knew, and then I saw Charlotte's hair, and, and I'd recognised the car. Sometimes we just know things by the Spirit. Yeah. That's a wonderful thing. Absolutely. Which you did when I said I met um, Sid. You said, yeah, you said, was it was it. You said you, that you'd met someone that day in Sainsbury's coffee shop. Yes. And I said, was it Sid? Sid. <laughs> that's it, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's it. Moses and Elijah represented the law and the prophets. Peter, James and John represented the New Testament. So the Old and the New Testament both are centred on Jesus. That surely in, in heaven we shall know who everybody is, as you say. Yeah, that's true, yes, yes, yes. Uh, the, the visitors spoke 
about, spoke with Jesus about the departure that he would accomplish in Jerusalem. As that was the bit in Luke. His death and resurrection and ascension, which would open the door to salvation. And they're here to witness Jesus' presence before the crucifixion. So Moses and Elijah could well be the two in white at the resurrection. We don't know who they were, the two people in, who appeared at the tomb. And there are two more witnesses that we read about in Revelation. So they, it, these Moses and Elijah could be those two. So then we go to verse 5. Peter jumps in. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, sorry, yes, that's, that's right. Thanks, Grace. Yeah, the ascension. And the ascension. <laughs> Get it right eventually. Uh, then first, first five, Peter jumps in, as usual. And then verse seven, the cloud overshadows them. Uh, the word there means more enveloping, which it is more obvious, I think, in, in the Luke's version. The voice from the cloud is to the disciples, whereas in Mark 1, verse 11, at Jesus' baptism, the words are to Jesus. And in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear, i.e. not Moses or Elijah, only, only him. Then we go down to verse 8. Um, suddenly when they look around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Once, once God has spoken, they realise Moses and Elijah have disappeared to emphasise that they must look to and listen only to Jesus. And then verse 9, after Jesus tells them to keep quiet, they launch into questions about rising from the dead. But why would they do that when Job's already sorted that out in Job 19, verse 25 to 27? I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. It's wonderful, isn't it? Job said that all those years ago. <laughs> Quite amazing. Uh, we got to verse, in the verse, verse 11. They then start asking about Elijah. And of course, in Malachi 4, uh, verse 5, they were expecting Elijah to come before the Messiah. And obviously, John the Baptist was the one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way, as it were, in, in Elijah mode. And, and verse, uh, verse 12, Jesus replies, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. But then, sort of colloquially, as it were, he says, Hang on a minute, what about the Son of Man? <laughs> so they're talking, keep going about Elijah, but they're forgetting about Jesus. And what does the scripture say about him? It makes you wonder whether, whether the, um, obviously this, the disciples have followed what the scribes have been saying, whether they've forgotten the scriptures. In, you wonder whether they've forgotten, they've been concentrating on Isaiah 9, which is obviously unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom forever. So they were waiting for the overthrow of the Romans and that's what they were concentrating on. And they'd forgotten about Isaiah 53, 
Jews believed our message unto whom was the arm of the Lord being revealed, and further down, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So it's, you wonder whether that's why they, they were concentrating on the wrong thing. A couple of thoughts, uh, and then I'll finish, more or less, no, I'm nearly finished with a commentary quote. God probably brought Moses along, apart from him being one of the witnesses, because uh, he'd forbidden Moses to go into the promised land, as you remember, because he'd been disobedient and hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock. So God had said, you won't go into the promised land. So, but now, by grace, he gets a chance to set his foot on the promised land. And Jesus chose the furthest place on Mount Hermon, furthest place north in the land, before journeying right down the country to his death, much further south in Jerusalem. A chap called Campbell Morgan, shall I see if I can find him? Campbell Morgan considered that what the disciples saw was not the effulgence of deity, but the glory of sinless and perfected humanity that the Lord at that moment was ready to return to heaven again without dying, for death is a result of sin and he was sinless. But for the second time, the first time would have been at his baptism, turned his back upon heaven in order that, as perfected man, he might share in the mystery of human death. But the transfiguration, while an event of tremendous significance in itself, touching the person of Jesus, also plays an important part in the spiritual education of the disciples and profoundly impressed the early church, as in 2 Peter 1. It confirmed their faith, which may well have begun to waver after the revelations of chapter 8, verses 31 and 34, Son of Man must suffer many things, etc. It showed that the conception of a suffering Messiah would not, was not contrary to the Old Testament revelation, but accorded well with the testimony of the law and the prophets, of whom Moses and Elijah were representatives. And in verse 7, it urged the importance of listening to the Lord when he spoke of his approaching passion. Mark 8, 32. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He must be killed, which Peter had been unwilling to do. And the reference in Peter is that which is a wonderful verse. Is, for we did not follow uh, 2 Peter 1, verse 16 and 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honour and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard his voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Hallelujah. It's great, isn't it? Wonderful verses, isn't it? <laughs> Hallelujah. Um, that concludes most of it. I've got the um, chap called Cranfield, Benjamin lent me a um, commentary, and he said it's most important to concentrate on these Old Testament references they were all to do with clouds, <laughs> which were quite amazing. Not that one. Um, loads, of, loads of references to clouds at the time when um, 
clouds appeared, the pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. Exodus 40, the cloud covered the tent of the meeting, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of the meeting, etc. And further on, the um, Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he's not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place, for I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. And then Exodus 16, while Aaron was speaking, and then there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. So there are lots of instances of clouds all over the place, <laughs> which is really, obviously, it's tremendous. I mean, great if we... They, they were so blessed, really, when the Israelites had a cloud by day and a fire by night. It's so easy, isn't it? You, you wonder why they made so many mistakes. <laughs> it's easy enough to follow, to do what you're told, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Most, most of the time. So, yeah, there lots of cl- anyway, there are lots of clouds. Has anybody got any other questions? Hang on. I guess so. Okay. Um, does anybody have any insight into verse 12? Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. That's my statement and question. Elijah... I don't, I don't know if it links to the end of Malachi. So Malachi 4.5, I'll send you Elijah the prophet. And verse 6, he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. I don't know if it links with that at all. Yeah. Him restoring all things. Yeah. It's obviously, he's got a key role to play yeah. in end times. Yeah. Okay. Oh. <laughs> it's just that um, Jesus came to restore all that was lost. Mm. That's a biblical truth. I don't quite know where it is, but you know, I often pray it. He came to seek and save the lost, didn't he? Yes. Um, I can think of that as a biblical phrase. Yeah. Um, and obviously, he, he's oh, I, the restorer. I will look up. Um, I will yeah. look it up. But yeah. I have, I felt it was a biblical principle or from the word. I also going in that reference you to to Isaiah fifty three. Mm. Isaiah fifty three is not read in their daily readings. It's excluded. They oh, is that the reason? It by. Oh. That's very naughty of them, isn't it? It is indeed. <laughs> too, much, too much control went on, wasn't it, really? And the other one was he's taken James, John, Peter, James and John up, up the mountain. He hasn't taken the others. He probably didn't want them to go down and say, you should have been up where we are. That would have been divisional, wouldn't it? The others would have been jealous. Or why weren't we taken up? It's they are still very. Um, not, uh, they're still arguing amongst themselves who is the greatest. So yes, yes. I wonder whether that's the reason why he says, "Tell no one yes. until I've been crucified." Yes. And then they were up in the upper room, and yes. they were talking about everything. Yes. Yes. Uh, a couple of things. Um, is there anywhere where Jesus warns them what he's about to do, what's he, what he's about to reveal to them? Because they're quite a shock to be taken for a walk, and, and then suddenly, <laughs> you know, what happens happens. I mean, it's just awesome. So, is there any scripture well, that? In, well, in the previous chapter, that he was that he was 
warning them that what was going to happen. But he doesn't he, say that he's just about to go and reveal himself in the way that he did. Oh, he didn't, he didn't warn that they were going up the mountain, you mean? No, that he was going to be transfigured in a blaze of light or anything like that. No. No, no so it must so. have been a terrible shock to them. Yeah, that's why they were all frightened. Um, <laughs> but also, you, meant, you mentioned in Matthew, um, probably you all know this, but I couldn't work this one out. It, it, in Matthew um, verse 13 of chapter 17, then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Now, yeah. I, I don't quite... Didn't, I didn't make that connection. Didn't understand why. Apropos of, of Elijah, that Elijah already come. So Elijah already come. John the Baptist was, as it were, the in the, the, in the coming in the spirit of Elijah. Yeah. Okay. It's worth saying, I think, that when he says um, they did to him whatever they wished. Mm that the disciples realised that that was John the Baptist because he'd been executed by yeah, Herod yeah, yeah. at that point, I think. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it points it out that, that it was John the Baptist quite clearly. Mm. Um, and it says about him coming in the power and spirit of Elijah. Yeah. Um, so there's this tremendous thing about Elijah in the scriptures, about the Elijah and the preparation for the Messiah, really. And John mm. the Baptist obviously... Uh, re, re, John the Baptist's job was to, was to bring about repentance, yeah. um, ready for the Messiah. And it's much more difficult to say exactly what Jesus means when he's saying about uh, Elijah must come again. Mm. But these two witnesses in Revelation are almost certainly Moses and Elijah. Mm. And again, it seems to me that, the, the, that it will be to do with res restoration because they prophesy and it's, I think my own opinion is, for what it's worth, uh, that they're probably their job is to turn the Jews again to the Messiah, to prepare yeah. the way of the yeah. Messiah again. So, yeah, it's not, it's, it's not clear exactly what Jesus is saying about Elijah coming again, but it must be right, you know. And, and I, I personally am convinced that the witnesses in Revelation are Moses and Elijah. It's the only, it's the only explanation that makes any sense to me at mm. all. Thank you. I'd like to just carry out um, what John has just been saying because in Revelation 11 um, it says, and I will give power to my two witnesses. And if they're Jesus's two witnesses, they are the ones who saw his death, resurrection and ascension. Whereas the disciples they died after a hundred, well, within a hundred years, so it, they couldn't be his no. witnesses. But yeah. Moses and Elijah could. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the law and the prophets, are you saying like one is Moses and one is John the Baptist? John the Baptist, a prophet, and Moses, the law? Uh, they represent, yeah, yeah Moses... Yeah, the rep representation. Yeah, but the law and the prophets are the are the, wit the two great witnesses anyway. Yeah. Moses and Elijah embody that, really. Yeah. I think. Well, it's also interesting in that Moses was the other one who had to cover his face because it shone. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
it was white, so they were found it awkward having a man that was so covered in white. Mm. So, I've been with Jesus yeah. up the mountain. Mm. Quite challenging thought, that one. Oh, I almost forgot. If you'd like it, I've printed out the, it all in one, all three in one page. Does anybody like one? <laughs> well, thanks very much for listening. Can I just say, um, I, I'm really blown away by that whole thing about um, Elijah and Moses, because I didn't realise that, that they were that they were there at the resurrection and ascension. Yeah. That's something I hadn't seen, yeah. I hadn't seen yeah, before. Yeah, sure, I'd forgotten about the ascension. Uh, yeah. Um, and I'm sure, what was Gilbert saying just now? What was... Sorry. What? Moses' face glowed oh, yeah. just like... It doesn't appear in Mark, but it, did it appear in Matthew? He said his face glowed. In yes, John, like yes. And I was going to say, because Liz was saying about how did they not realise, and I was thinking about that, and... Um, because Jesus was praying, wasn't he, in Matthew? They went, he went up the yes. mountain to pray, yes. it says in that's Matthew. The, that's the other major Because I've only been looking at the Mark one, and, I, mm. and that mm. makes yeah. a lot of sense. So perhaps it came, he started glowing in the course of praying, perhaps. Yes. But mm. then also, don't they fall into a daze, mm. the disciples, and, and one of them, and then they kind of suddenly uh, discover Jesus glowing. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, it says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. Mm. The word's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> the more you get, the more you look, the more you find. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Hallelujah.